Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, um, which now feels so long ago, Zoe, that it was almost as if we saw the first performance of Hamlet. We saw the original Hamlet. Yes, I think you were an usher at the Rose Theatre, if I recall. (laughs) (laughs) It was the 1590s. Um, This week, because we've been absent for a while and yet still chipping away at at the old culture block we thought we'd do a bit of a roundup on the things that we that yeah that we've seen recently that we thought we thought we'd just sound off on so uh thought we'd start with death on the nile we've seen the remake of west side story we both went to see wuthering heights at the national theater and we also went to see the souvenir part two which we were actually not holding very high hopes out for but we loved the first one uh, so much as you can tell from our hype that we did on it that we thought we really had to see it but it was yeah well we'll get to we'll get to that bear with us for a slightly different format the casual chit chat and the roundup so Tom we saw Death on the Nile together uh, on Saturday um, you you uh, your eyes got droopy at times um, <laughs> it, it, to put it mildly <laughs> what did you make of, of the Brana remake well, that's one way to kind of undermine anything I now say about it, because clearly I didn't stay conscious for the entirety of it. But I should also say to listeners that Zoe then told me she went into a 12 hour sleep afterwards. <laughs> and this I usually is... struggle to sleep for about five hours. So 12 hours. Yeah. This this really would put anybody in a catatonic trance. I thought it was one of the worst glossy movies I've seen for a while. And um, so I was already a little bit disillusioned by Branner's first sort of reboot of Christie um, in that he did a few years ago um, the um, Voyage on the Orient Express. Oh, sorry, Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and here he is now turning his hand to Death in the Nile. I mean, there's so many things that went wrong with this film, but let's start, first of all, maybe with Branagh's vanity. Like, What has possessed him to want to kind of take these well-beloved Christie novels and indeed these very august Christie films and then create these completely random new casts? I quite recently saw the 1978 Death on the Nile and I thought it was magnificent, actually. And you look at the cast list of talent, you know, they had Maggie Smith, uh, they had Angela Lansbury, they had David Niven, they had Mia Farrow. Who have we got in 2021? Well, we've got Russell Brand, we've got Dawn French, um, we've got that girl from Sex Education and we've got the wannabe cannibal, Army Hammer. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a completely random collection of stars given, indeed, completely random collection of accents. Um, Zoe, I know that you found the accents particularly annoying. I found it, like, incomprehensible why you would cast Gal Gadot. As much as I like Gal Gadot and like the fact that she's a beautiful Israeli swashbuckling actress, I just don't understand why you would cast someone with this, with a fairly detectable Hebrew accent as an American heiress named Lynette. So, so that is just feels like adding a sort of bizarre riddle for the viewer that gets you absolutely nowhere. Uh, so you're just like, why? Like, what, what, why the accent? Uh, what's that? What is that about? Are, are there no American actresses that could have been cast? Annette Benning. 
as a <laughs> as an English sort of matron. Um, yeah, the the I, I I've long struggled with with accents um, in in theater and, and um, movies. And I actually once had my my soul turn on the Today Show, uh, having written an article about why it is that some of the best English RSC actors in the world still can't do American accents properly on stage, and vice versa. So. Yes, I was not happy with that, but I think that just spoke to a wider to that wider problem you're talking about, Tom, of the of the sheer randomness of it, just a mm. sort of parade of celebrity with no rhyme or reason or or meaning. Um, and another randomness, Zoe, if I can just add to the randomness, you know, here's this uh, original, obviously written in 1937, set in Egypt. Branagh has decided to not do any filming in Egypt. Now, I understand that modern Egypt is not the same as Egypt of the 1930s, but his solution is instead to create this video game version of Egypt. I mean, everything feels sort of hyper real. It's like a CGI version um, of the ancient world. And so you don't really get any of the splendor of the 1970s film because you can see patently that all the sets are fake. Everything feels kind of fake and thin. Um, and that goes for a lot of the acting as well, that feels, I thought, a bit kind of fake and thin. And um, one thing I found particularly egregious is the attempt to try and make Poirot into an action hero. Um, Poirot is given a backstory in this. We should tell people that Poirot is, you know, we get to see, get a glimpse of his first world war record. But we then discover that he's quite handy with a pistol. He's kind of throwing meat cleavers around. Peter Ustinov would never have done this. This is no longer a drama about cerebral deduction. It's just another generic action movie um, and a kind of very long and boring one. <laughs> we don't, okay, but we don't want you to stop listening now because we're, we're just like hurling insults. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, think, I think there is something interesting to be said more broadly, though, from this about the aesthetic and the sort of influencer-like look of it. I mean, the sense that it all, it looks like it's passed through the same lens, the same adjustments that a sort of someone who's, you know, modeling in, in the Maldives or Dubai or whatever would, would use. And it, it just has that sort of homogenized look, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, I am starting to pick up on these trends in, in various films that I'm seeing where, you know, there's a sumptuousness um, of set, but it's, it's sort of sterile. And as you say, there's nothing about it that has any kind of genuine feeling of being in Egypt. So it's this, it's this kind of five-star kind of Soho house plus look. And I think that that's quite interesting that there is this universal idea of, of luxury now that just, it just isn't really fit into any particular context. It's similar to that, I think is this, um, expressive hom homogeneity which you see mm. where every time a character is in camera the camera goes right up to their face as close in as possible so that you see the pores on their face and their eyes well with tears it doesn't matter what conversation is being had <laughs> the eyes will well with tears and so I think there's something going on here again about the hyperbolic sentimentalization of our emotional palette now that Branagh is kind of shamelessly cashing in on as if all the action and the drama and the refinement is supposed to come from these these hyper you know, intense shots of their faces tearing up uh, but that to me does not make up for the complete absence of, of substance discernible substance in script or anything else so I, I don't know Tom do you think there's something in that this kind of new aesthetic both in terms of set but also in the way the actors are filmed and expected to look in contrast to speak or act yes uh i think that i think the, the focus on the faces doing all of the work as these sort of tableaus rather than the dialogue is really noticeable in this and um, 
you know, the, the, the dialogue is shrunk down into these very brief lines, these very kind of throwaway, I mean, presumably the writer thought they were zingers, but they just feel kind of flat one-liners. And then it's the face and the music that goes with the face. So you get this sort of swelling crescendo behind that gives you the sense of the of feeling. It's very emotionally manipulative. And I also feel um, it's actually weirdly earnest in that this film should have been a kind of romp. I mean, there's a part of this that Branagh clearly realizes is um, a sort of Saturday afternoon uh, English entertainment. Like, you know, it, it could be very kind of twee and very knowing. Um, and instead he plays it so straight and it's so earnest that it feels, it feels plodding. Um, and so whereas I guess what we're going to want to say with some of the other remakes that we've seen is that they were too irreverent to the text. Like they actually introduced a note of comedy that maybe was kind of grotesque. Um, in this case, it was it was sort of overly earnest and it didn't really look like anyone was having much fun with it. Um, now, if we turn to a remake that we've got different views on, Zoe, uh, I wonder if I can invite you to, to give us your impressions of the new West Side Story that obviously is up. Uh, well, it's been sort of up for, won the Golden Globe, I think, and it's sort of up for the Oscars this year for, for best film. What did you make of the new Spielberg West Side Story? Um well, I just before getting to that, Tom, I just wanted to make a, a one slight uplift as the, as the final comment on Death on the Nile, which is that for those who watch this and then think Agatha Christie is to blame or in any way not great, I encourage you to read some Agatha Christie's uh, because Absolutely. actually what, what gets distorted in the films is what is in, in, the, in the prose itself, an incredibly impressive spare style which is gripping it's 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 um it doesn't have any flab and it cleaves mercilessly to plot and mm. that is all brilliant stuff that contemporary writers could absolutely learn from it's just a shame that in Branagh's hands uh it seems to kind of translate into this like thudding dull banality mm. uh in a way mm. okay so on West Side Story um well I, I I mean Tom I think you need to take the lead on this one I I watched the original a few months ago um, at the behest of someone who's a huge fan. Uh, and then I watched the new one. I marginally enjoyed the new one more. I don't enjoy either of them. Neither of them uh, move me. I, neither of them make me want to keep watching. They feel like a chore. That said, I recognize that the, the music is, is great. The lyrics are great. But Tom, can you please just walk us through why you love the first one, why the first one's such a classic, why you think Spielberg decided to make a second one and what you made of it. So I think the new one is masterful, Zoe. I'm really a huge fan of what Spielberg has done, although I had my doubts before and I felt like it was simply going to be a retread and what was the point. And, but in, in, the, you know, in the spirit of remakes, it's got just enough distance from the original that I think it's doing something fresh. Tony Kushner, who's come and done the screenplay, has clearly sort of immersed himself in the story of New York in the 1950s. So that in the original, the songs and the dance was always spectacular, but the story felt thin. Um, whereas now you've got this incredibly rich historical story, um, all about gentrification. Like he's decided that the story of West Side Story is actually the story of real estate in New York. And so the demolitions that took place around Lincoln Square in order to create the Lincoln Center. So sort of out of the slums, you get the theater. Um, and as a result, I thought he was really, he really was able to go into the texture of the city. And I loved the locations in the new film. He uses bits in New York really ingeniously. Um, one hand, one heart, there's that beautiful sequence where 
uh, Tony and Maria go to the cloisters in New York. And I thought that that was all kind of spectacular. There are all those wonderful scenes kind of on the Hudson. Um, so it's about the city and it has a real political snarl to it, which was also missing in the original, which was slightly softer. Um, there's a nice line where um, Kushner talks about the Jets as the last of the can't make it Caucasians. You know, and in the era of Trump's uh, kind of America, there's something about angry, dispossessed white people and the politics that comes with that um, that makes for really kind of gripping drama. So, yeah, I thought it had much more kind of bite than the original. It's doing something much more interesting in terms of making comments about American politics and society. But the real thing that made me, um, I have to say, cry for 50% of the film, I would say the, I'm more of the film I was weeping than not, including scenes that are not sad. But the thing that really, really moved me was the quality of the singing. The original Tony and Maria in the film, I mean, Natalie Wood famously, were inert and a bit useless. Like, I love that original soundtrack, but they don't have the voices for it. Whereas in this, I felt it was so heady, the singing, and the voices blended so beautifully, um, and the new Anita is amazing and really spirited. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a stellar piece of work. Although my love for it is complicated by the fact that did we really need another one? Like, has it actually moved the dial forward? Well, we're just all grateful, Tom, that you were weeping and not sleeping through it. See, these are the, apparently the oh, two yeah, options. This is... <laughs> so I agree. I think Maria and Tony and Anita, they, they had beautiful voices and they sang really well and it was all really good. But Tom, talk to me a little bit more about the casting. I mean, we talked about how annoying the Death on the Nile casting was. What did you think of the casting in this one? I mean, the voices are obviously good. What about this row about that it somehow manages to still be racist, even though... To, to most people, it, it just seems really good. Well, I think Spielberg tried really hard to work with um, Latin American uh, actors and singers from the beginning, but there has still been some anger um, that uh, there aren't enough uh, dark-skinned Latinos. There's a question of like, is the cast too light-skinned? Um, is there a sort of colorism at work within it? And also a little bit of grumbling over the fact that some of the performers are not strictly speaking from Puerto Rico. They might be from Colombia or from elsewhere in kind of Central America. I think this is really petty. Um, and it's a way of trying to find bad faith in a project that clearly is about celebrating um, kind of Hispanic immigrants into the US. And so to try and kind of fail it on these grounds that it's not quite authentic because of you know particular national differences, that seems really stingy to me. More problematic maybe is the inclusion of the trans character. I don't know how you felt about that, Zoe, but certainly mm. an addition from the from the new film, mm. um, in the new film, whereas it's a tomboy in the original, um, the character of anybody's now is trans. Um, and the other big shift, of course, they've done is to create this entirely new character, the old lady, Valentina, uh, who gets to sing somewhere. Um, and as a result, the, the way that the songs and the plot is distributed at the end of the piece is sort of slightly different. And mm. um, the sad thing to say, and this is the last thing just on our theme, it has not done very well at the box office. Mm. Um, and I have read a piece saying that does this prove that people actually are sick of remakes and what they want is sequels. People would much rather have the same cast in like an updated adventure or kind mm. of part two or part three of a story they already know rather than the remake of an original story. Mm. Um, and there was an interesting piece about to what extent has the remake run its course. Mm. 
That's actually a good point. If I had been a, a diehard of the original, I don't think I'd have particularly had any motivation to see the, this one. And I think I only saw the second one because I was hoping it would sort of, I could be, well, actually I fell asleep in the first one. So I was hoping I could like, be compelled <laughs> that Spielberg would keep my eyes open in the second one. So just moving briskly on to another thing we've seen recently, this is, it is all sounding a bit, well, for me, misery guts, but uh, both Tom and I went to see this very, very hyped, within reason, obviously, within London theatre, uh, production of um, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights at the National Theatre. And it was a production by Emma Rice, who is renowned. For, she was mm-hmm. she was briefly artistic director of The Globe, I believe, but was actually then she was. got rid of because of her, I don't know, I think it was something to do with how she handled lighting. And she, but she just generally has an incredibly bombastic, rather than like going to the characters from the past, she wants them to come to us. I think that seems to be her kind of signature kind of noisy <laughs> style. Um, so I think she wants those characters to dance on our heads. I mean, she, she wants them to like stamp on you, know, stamp yeah, on you and then rave I don't think in your dance. house. Yeah, I think she wants them to rave on our, on our beds. I think that, that's probably <laughs> about right. So what were your sort of initial thoughts on sitting down to snuggle in for a national theatre production of one of the greats of English literature? Uh, and then, you know, as it kind of progressed, what were your, <laughs> what were your observations? <laughs> <laughs> Zoe's trying to steer my observations in a particular direction. I will say that I sat down with great anticipation in that I'd loved the National Theatre's Jane Eyre that they did a few years ago, which was also a kind of deconstructed Jane Eyre um, that was very cleverly staged with just a few objects and kind of great innovation. And I, you know, I had very high hopes for this. It was like a noisy, mad pantomime version of Wuthering Heights is what I would say. Um, so, and that's what I was thinking of when I said that, that Death in the Nile actually, Bran has taken all the joy out of it and could have played it camp and didn't. This was almost nothing but camp. Like you don't feel that anyone on the stage believes in the original story at all. It's just an excuse to do this kind of riotous kind of carnival-like performance. Um, I think for me, I mean, let's, let's go straight to it. One of the major problems um, was the relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff in Act One. I think it gets much better after the break. When they're dead, you can actually really kind of settle into the production um, and some of, its, some of its qualities, I thought, really improved, like its comedy. Um, and I should say the person who is amazing is an actress called Katie Owen, who plays Isabella and then doubles up as Little Linton, um, who, again, is just fantastic at the humour of it. But the kind of Kathy Heathcliff gothic tale of, like, doomed romance and tragic attachment that I thought felt very flat. Um, Zoe, do you want to say a little bit about <laughs> why you did not fall in love with this Kathy and Heathcliff combination? Well, so, you know, when I read the book, I certainly don't recall thinking, Kathy, what an absolute nightmare. Um, but maybe she was. I mean, I, I, I do. I remember thinking Heathcliff sounded like a bit kind of a bit too edgy for, for me. But in this production, oh, I just can't. I cannot overstate how much I was immediately put in mind of like the bo- of Beedales, the boarding school I went to, which had, <laughs> you know, it was a bohemian boarding school with lots of pop star and rock star offspring. And there was a particular kind of w- confident wildness that people just didn't question wild hair, wild passions, all of it, you know, all taking place, for instance, like amid some sheep in a field. I mean, the, the whole thing just reminded me of 
of a slightly cool hippie-ish boarding school production so that's the first thing to say because may I say Beedells did put on some pretty good productions had some talented actors but this to me didn't seem something like the national theater would necessarily put on and then within that scheme Kathy was like a sort of nightmare head girl or maybe not even a head girl just some sort of other nightmare from bohemian boarding school she was just she was I don't know how to describe her she was abrasive she was a banshee she was she was a banshee but that's almost too kind she was agonizingly crude agonizingly harsh she had a harshness and crudeness and not caring at all that I think is very particular to our time in terms of affect I'm sure that there were completely horrendous women in the 1840s, but I don't think they could have mani- they could have expressed themselves with the sheer physical abandon she did and the shouting and the noise. Emma Rice obviously felt the need to make us think she's autistic. So that's also a very modern and contemporary sensibility. Like let, let's pathologize these characters because from our enlightened perspective today, we can we can imagine all kinds of illnesses they might have had. Uh, you know, maybe. But the the way it played out, it actually made my heart break for Emily Bronte. (laughs) That said, Tom, you were neither weeping nor falling asleep. It was, you were not falling (laughs) asleep. The thing is, the story is so sad. It just tugs on your heartstrings, no matter how it's being rendered. Tom, do you want to just tell us what you made of Heathcliff? I would say that Kathy was crude. I would say Lucy McCormick gave it everything in her being. Like This is not a criticism of the actress. This is a criticism of the interpretation that they decided to kind of roll with. But I agree with you, it was a completely feral Cathy. Um, one of the reasons why I thought the relationship with Heathcliff didn't work was that his energy was completely different. Um, I've seen one review that says it's like he's the only person in the production that's playing it straight, as it were. And so his energy was so low and was so sort of contained that it felt that she was sort of a deranged kind of bat flying around it. And he was, you know, a completely blank kind of void almost at the heart of the production. So yeah, I didn't like Ash Hunter's performance at all. I thought it was completely, um, I mean, just completely deadened really. And I think some of the problems of that are related actually to the political interpretation of the the play. And they are too keen, I think, to make Heathcliff a victim in this. And I wondered if that was to do with the choice of casting Heathcliff as a black actor. And so when you see the kind of persecution of young Heathcliff, um, there's a way in which you you clearly think about prejudice and so on in in 19th century society. And, you know, and to be fair, in the novel, he is described as a Lascar. You know, that there are these terms that imply that Heathcliff might be a gypsy or that there might be something kind of exotic about him. But because they lead with Heathcliff as victim of a kind of prejudicial white society, the problem is that as Heathcliff becomes nastier and nastier, the, the piece struggles to sort of map that kind of demonic quality in him. And um, because I think really, you know, as I say, demonic, the other word for Heathcliff is Byronic. Like this is a man who's almost like beyond morality by the end of it and is, and is really a sadist and an abuser. And they choose in this production to take out some of Heathcliff's worst crimes. So in the book, he hangs Isabella's dog Uh, listeners might remember whereas in this that's not represented but it's a sign of just how nasty he becomes but because the actor's playing him so flat and because we're encouraged to think of him as a victim he doesn't really ever become this the the monster that I think um, Emily Bronte certainly realized was in his character and that kind of the production would have been better if he was a little bit a little bit darker and as I said at the start it's the lack of gothic qualities in this it's like the lack of chilling horror it's the lack of the moor as a kind of wild expanse. It's the lack of the haunted house. Even the music in this production, and there is loads of music, 
but very little of it had anything sinister about it. Um, all of it just feels like a day at the fair. And it was fun. It was bouncy. You know, it was it was had a some moments of kind of comic glee, um, but it felt quite a long way from the, the kind of emotional claustrophobia that should be Wuthering Heights. I mean, I, I can't help but think that maybe Heathcliff's demonic soul had to be played down because of considerations about race because he's so because being black was obviously foregrounded in this as, as it you know fair enough mm. but maybe there was discomfort with with demonizing mm. the the sort of yeah. black character uh in, in the way that the brother the white you know the the um kathy's brother is is just kind of just a complete thug i don't remember what he was like in the in the book he probably was a thug but but he but i think that was maybe an issue um i i do have a quick question on on this finally before we move to the souvenir tom do you think that the story about love in that way this kind of and the destruction it can have on two families and the intensity of it and the and then the end the kind of religiosity of it um do you think that that story is lost on us now is the reason this was such a kind of foolish bombastic production albeit fun because essentially they were mature and grown up when it came to handling passions uh passion fit into the into the worldview of the or, or at least into the romantic psychological worldview maybe or the literary worldview of, of mm. people in the 19th century but that it's alien to us now in this time of sharing every thought, therapy, so on and so forth, serving yourself, not being in abusive relationships, not being in coercive control or, you know, do, do you think, basically, do you think that the audience is interested in the world that the original Wuthering Heights describes? I think the audience doesn't have a feeling for it. I think that's right, Zoe. I think listening to the adaptation here, I was constantly struck about the fact that Heathcliff and Kathy are not just outside of the bounds of polite society, but are outside of Christianity as well. And you're told again and again that there's this desire to be together outside of the church, outside of the sacraments, outside of any kind of formal plot of land or any kind of official tomb. There's something like wildly pagan that the 19th century was both fascinated and scared by, but I think a modern audience doesn't understand what that spiritual rebellion might be or that kind of pagan quality might be i'm interested in what you say zoe that maybe we're all a bit too self not self-centered or sort of self-obsessed to understand what the kathy heathcliff thing is meant to be and that again in the book it's quite clear that they're merging into one person and um, you know kathy has those lines where she says you know i am heathcliff and heathcliff is me and we are part of each other it's it's like tristan and his older or something it's like mm. a wagnerian fusion uh and maybe in the 21st century, we, we're scared of that or we, you know, we associate that with abusive relationships or with sort of toxic romances. And, you know, we, um, you know, we, we would rather think about relationships as a kind of marriage of equals or a kind mm, of, you know, a mm. meeting of two different minds rather mm. than this kind of bizarre incorporation fusion model that even Emily Bronte, to be fair, sees as deeply destructive. Mm, um, mm. But I think maybe modern audiences struggle to, to fully understand it. Maybe, yes, maybe the sort you of... You certainly can't play it for laughs. Our worldview, our model of equality, perhaps dulls our abilities to understand the destructiveness and the intensity of, of mm. the world she's describing. I think that's very interesting what you say about the paganism and the being outside of these formal structures that would just pass us by now because we're all outside of those now. We're all essentially yeah, pagans, all pagans by their standards. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, actually, the lovers being 
so intensely bound that they feel like they are each other leads us as a decent bridge onto the souvenir tom which was the substance of the first one this consuming love but incredibly destructive the souvenir two didn't have any of that in it so tom what 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 were you hoping for the souvenir two and what did you get i actually love the analogy you've drawn there zoe between emily bronte and joanna holt i really like that because i do think the first film it's a stretch I think part of the reason I loved the first film was it was romantic with a capital R. Like it was really interested in older references. Um, without, you know, listeners may remember that there's this allusion to Fragonard. There's all this use of the Bartok music for Duke Bluebeard and so on. There is a real sense that this is a relationship which is uh, weighed down or hemmed in by kind of all these cultural references, some of which are very ominous and quite, um, and quite threatening. Um, Part of the problem with the souvenir part two is that I think a lot of those cultural references have vanished. Like, you know, whereas the, the first film felt that there were all of these layers building up, all of these kind of strange associations and sort of mysterious associations. This feels completely denuded um, of anything except nominally the 1980s. Although I think you'd say Zoe too, that like, did this feel like it was set in the 80s in any kind of meaningful way other than the soundtrack? And again, we come back to the problem that music is doing like 70% of the work in anything mm. that we watch now, other than the kind of checklist of like, oh yeah, it's Talk Talk, oh yeah, it's Annie Lennox. Apart from that, did this feel like a particularly a particular sensibility of the 1980s? There I was, uh, I was a bit less convinced. And um, I'd be interested what you think about the, the setting, Zoe, but one thing I will say is that in this film, she is pining for Anthony. You know, it's all about life after the death of the beloved. And I can't help but say as an audience member, I was also sort of pining for Anthony. Like, you know, it felt like the first film which he was in was the one that had drama, that had character, that had plot. Whereas this is like some dreary sequel where you've taken away the kind of key protagonist or the key kind of malefactor who made everything possible. And it feels, it just sort of plateaus, I thought, emotionally. It didn't, it didn't really have an arc arc is not even the right geometry for this it was more like <laughs> was there anything in it that had any sequential meaning whatsoever the 1980s it's always fun you know texture is worth you know I'm, I'm happy to watch a film that's mm. highly textured that gives me the feeling of a, of a place in time but that doesn't have too much plot but I mean there were a few slips here I mean maybe I'm being overly judgmental but uh, can you imagine but but there was there was one point when when Julie um, says in agreement a hundred percent, and that is something that is very much the hallmark of twenty twenty kind of twenty twenty one twenty like. I don't think they said it in the 80s. Equally, someone talks about headspace. Again, don't think they said that in the 80s. It's a shame because the the whole the soft colors, the the naturalism, the scenes, all of that were incredible. You know, it's been incredibly powerful and other of her films not just the souvenir but this one just felt a bunch of art school students that we didn't get to know just randomly going about trying to make a film and unfortunately Julie without the interest of Anthony uh yeah just was was quite boring and that's a shame I mean Tom do you have any kind of less depressing reflections on how that might fit within a broader Hoggian of oh I don't know about Hoggy and Irv. That's a big question. <laughs> I would say it's not a surprise it ends with a music video. So again, a trans kind of or sort of non-binary music video at the end by Anna Calvi. Because it feels like the whole movie is just building up to be a music video. Like all she wants to give you is sort of sumptuous images and minimal dialogue or minimal kind of ideas in order to kind of, you know, you know, navigate them. And um, 
in terms of where does it fit in the hockey nerve, I think part of the reason it's let down is because it is too much about the millennials. It really is a kind of interchangeable bunch of art school students who, you know, are glossy on the camera, but none of whom are really given personalities. Whereas she's got at the heart of this film, this really very interesting um, decision to cast Tilda Swinton as the mother, who is the real mother of the actress as well. And, and you, I was just desperate for more of the older generation, for more about life for the middle classes and their quiet desperations and their banalities. And I think in terms of the hoggy and herb, the thing I think is brilliant about Janowar Hogg is that she discovered a way of making films about middle England, middle class England. And, and a lot of what the thrust of her development as a filmmaker was, was moving away from the fetish for working class poverty and movies about Sunderland and movies about Thatcherism and instead making films about what you know. And I just felt in this, sadly, the balance was all on the young who aren't what's interesting and nowhere near enough on the old who are really, and I would always say this, that's where the story's at. Like there's something interesting about, even in their uptightness and their quiet desperation, there's something very interesting about um, these rather prim characters of an earlier old generation who mm. I wish we'd seen slightly more mm. of. And they're at a really interesting moment because they're, you know, middle, they're, they're middle-aged or a bit older in the 1980s. They're born in the 1930s, mm. 1940s. And, and yeah, I agree that that gets completely left out. Uh, I mean, we, we're probably very bad, Tom, for not having actually even given a plot rundown of this. Not that there is a plot, but but just the, the motif basically is that Anthony's dead. She's now in mourning. And it's about her trying to make a film about their love story for her graduating project. And she's, instead of doing doing something on Sunderland she's changed course to this and so you do see these sort of agonized um, exchanges with the people at the film school who, who don't think this is a good idea at all and then the action is around her friends you know helping her make this film which apparently ends up being quite good um, maybe it's not the film we see any final thoughts Tom well I suppose is it worth closing by saying kind of why the hype for remakes yeah like, why do people want remakes yeah. as a way of tying this together um, is it that we're living at a time of intellectual exhaustion? I mean, you know, you sometimes feel mm. that there's so much mm. sort of cynical rebooting of kind of old franchises, you know, even Disney doing it with these kind of live action reshoots of all of mm. these old films. It, you, you can feel quite depressed about how kind of the same juice is being squeezed out from, from uh, old sources. I think one thing that's going on is people are nostalgic. Um, and a lot of these franchises I mean, maybe West Side Story is the best example here, but maybe also Christie, is that people like returning to things that they knew when they were children. And I think as, you know, as a whole new generation of cultural consumers grows up, they're, you know, these 80s movies are all being kind of rebooted at the moment, precisely mm. because people want to go back to Ghostbusters, you know, or go back to Top Gun. And um, so there is something about the, the way that the, the Hollywood system and the TV system is just uh, kind of gleefully feeding on nostalgia and at the moment the 90s is obviously a moment where again we're seeing a lot of retro fashion and some of that is linking to retro tv and retro films and you know you walk into a forbidden planet you know this shop um that specializes in fantasy and sci-fi stuff and it's all about these old 90s and franchises being rebooted and um, mm. what else is going on with the remake culture zoe Why well the I mean, I think I think you've basically really interestingly pinpointed it to be a mixture of exhaustion and nostalgia. The Souvenir, obviously, is a, is an example of a sequel. The Souvenir number two, the dreariest sequel the imaginable. Sequel, it's yeah. like a kind of it's like an epilogue. It's like an obituary epilogue. It's terrible. Yeah. it's the it's the sequel versus the the remake. We have to conclude that 
we need some fresh stuff because Tom and I, you know, we are prone to, to being critical, but I mean, we could, we, we are less critical with, with great new stuff. That said, Tom, you loved the, the remake of West Side Story, so it's not all bad. Uh, and I think there is, there is a scope for somebody doing a good Agatha Christie remake. I mean, I would love that. I love watching the Miss Marples on TV with my mother. Hi, Mom. So, you know, there is obviously scope for that. Anyway, join us next time for an episode on Love is Blind, the second season. 